Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to The Flower Path. On this episode, I'll be representing another story we did on Strange Familiars a little while back about a hermit priest from Brittany named Abbé Ferret. Before we get going, I want to thank the patrons of The Flower Path. Patrons and donations help me continue to make The Flower Path and bring you more content. All patrons get regular episodes of The Flowered Path ad-free often before they drop on the regular podcast feed. Rose and Orchid Tier patrons also get shoutouts on the show. Orchid Tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well. To check out all of the patron options and benefits and to help me to continue to make The Flowered Path, go to patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. You can also find a PayPal link if you want to make a one-time donation. Just click the support button at thefloweredpath.com and look for the PayPal button that says Donate. Before we get to tonight's story, let's check the news. Italy's southern island of Sicily has been ravaged this summer by wildfires. Dry conditions, scorching temperatures, and high winds have combined to cause a loss of human life, devastation of the landscape, and all-out destruction of significant historical and spiritual sites, such as the Church of Santa Maria di Gesù in Palermo. This church was globally known among devotees of St. Benedict the Moor, a free descendant of enslaved people who was born in 16th century Sicily. Benedict lived for a time as a hermit at Monte Pellegrino before going on to become a vital and respected leader of the Franciscan religious community in Palermo. St. Benedict the Moor was beatified in 1743 and canonized in 1807. Miracles attributed to him include the healing of serious illness and the multiplication of food for those in need. He is thought to be the first black person canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, 
and many venerate him as the patron saint of all descendants of the African diaspora. His body has been on display for centuries at the Church of Santa Maria de Jesu in Palermo and was found to be incorrupt. Due to the fires this summer, the entire church where his remains were kept has been reduced to nothing more than rubble and ruin. St. Benedict the Moor's feast day is April 4th. So tonight's story, like I said before, is one that we did on Strange Familiars, and I believe this is the first time you will hear my wife Allison's voice on The Flowered Path. She often does stories with me over at Strange Familiars. This is the story of a hermit priest in Brittany. It's a pretty amazing guy. He had to retire from the priesthood because he was having hearing problems, possibly a stroke, and he went on to do this incredible series of carvings on the coast of Brittany, outside of the town of Rudenhoof. I've mentioned it on Strange Familiars. I've not mentioned it over here. I'm actually writing a book right now on hermits. It has a title, finally. It's called I Have Never Minded the Loneliness. And while it's not specifically about religious hermits, Abbe Ferre is in the book. I wrote a chapter on him. And there are a few others in there. It's actually quite a few Catholic hermits but they're not specifically religious hermits in the book. Most of these are based on my collection of photographs, hermit photographs, which my wife Allison got me started with. She bought a hermit photograph for me, thinking I might like it, and I started doing research as to who it was, and the fellow had an incredible story. This was the first hermit story we did over at Strange Familiars on William Woodruff. That episode is called William of the Fiery Flowers. Since then, we've done several hermit episodes. It's a topic I'm very, very interested in. I love finding the stories of these hermits and telling them to modern listeners. Most of these hermits are from around the turn of the century, the ones I'm writing about. Some go on into the 20th century a bit, and some are from a little bit earlier in the 1800s. But most of them are right around the 1900 mark, Abbe Ferre being one of them. So let's go ahead and hear his story. Before we begin our story tonight, I want to say that we're going to do our best with the place names and the people names in this. You had two years of Spanish in high school. I had some French in high school and college, but I was never good at it. And this is Brittany anyway. Which yeah, is, which has a totally different dialect. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is the places we will be talking about and the people we will be talking about are all from Brittany. We're going to do our best. We're, I, we know we're wrong. You can correct us, but it's not going to make my pronunciation any better. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to be respectful. I tried to look it up and see the proper pronunciation. I'm going to mess it up. Yeah, we're going to mess it up. Mess up but. So I'm, I'm pre-apologizing, and I'm throwing the articles at Allison to read, so she's probably going to have the, the bulk of the work here. The man we are talking about was known as Abbe Fauri. He was a priest. So he settled in a place called Rutenuf. He retired there. And this is on the coast? This is on the northwest coast of Brittany. In 1894, 
a man appeared on the cliffs outside Rutenuf village. No one had ever seen him before. He was wearing a cassock. You know what that is? Mm-hmm. A long robe mm-hmm. that a priest would wear. And he was carving the rocks on the cliffs. And what he carved into those rocks was a number of different scenes. He, he was carving religious scenes, figures from folklore, medieval warriors, saints and angels, and a lot of what he was carving were scenes from the Rutenuf family. Obviously, the area is named for them. Now, that family has a very interesting history. They were a clan of smugglers and privateers, pirates, as we oh, call okay. them, <laughs> fishermen and hunters. They ruled the coast of that part of Brittany for over a century. A really, really interesting family. And I guess there's sort of like stories that kind of went into the local folklore, and he carved some of their stories into the rocks. So it was, uh, you know, this local flavor that he was carving along with these, you know, more general kind of religious scenes. And he didn't have like an ancestral tie to this area, per se. One article mentions that he said that he was born there, but that's, as far as I know, that's not where he was born. Yeah, I kind of looked it up because is it like his real name is what, like Adolphe Julian? It was. Foray? It was. <laughs> so this mysterious man was Abbe Fury, and he was known as the Hermit of Rutenuf or the Hermit of the Rock. So here's what we know about the early life of Abbe Fauré. Adolphe Julien Fauré was born on September 4th, 1839 in Toul, Brittany. September 4th. He almost was born on my birthday. Mm-hmm. Or I guess I was almost born on his birthday. Yeah. <laughs> According to an article printed in the Cincinnati Enquirer in 1903, he confided to the pastor of the village of Rutenuf that he was of noble birth and that he had been jilted by a woman, which made him give up on mankind and led to him joining the priesthood. Are we getting at our hermit bingo cards? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, how this is a trope we hear again and again when it comes to hermits. There's always a woman that a jilted them, lover that, that led them off. Sometimes it ends up being true. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that really is the story with these guys. I don't know. By the time they were able to interview him, he had had some health problems, which we'll hear about. But he was a priest, right? So the whole jilted lover story? like Well, they're saying that's what led him to into, be, the into the priesthood. Oh, okay. Yes. So, I mean, they're sort of equating priesthood and hermitdom as being very similar paths. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, to many that stepping away from women, you know, from the chance at a wife or a romantic relationship in that sense, maybe it is in a sense, uh, equivalent to being a hermit. Yeah, well, I mean, the the path is that you're going to go it alone, whether it be with God or nature, I suppose, but not in sort of a stereotypical fashion Yeah, with a partner. Yeah, it would be interesting. We should probably make a chart of these different hermits and try to figure out which ones really were jilted by women. Because the Wolf Hill Hermit in Gettysburg, that was supposedly part of his story, but we found out he was married a short Mm -hmm. time before he became a hermit, and his wife died. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of the stories said he, you know, he had been jilted by a woman, blah, blah, blah. But some stories said his love interest had died. And we did find out that his wife did die mm-hmm. shortly before then. Some people are just too damn peculiar. That's true. <laughs> Abbe Faure was ordained as a priest on December 19th, 1863. 
Oh, so he wasn't that old. No. Only 24. He spent his entire career as a priest in various villages throughout Brittany from 1864 through 1877. He served as curate at Pampoon in the chapel of St. I'm going to use the Latin name, St. Eligius <laughs> of the Forges. They have the French name here. I'm just going to mess it up if I try it. <laughs> Which is really interesting because here he supported a workers' movement which led to the shutdown of blast furnaces in the region. Like an early environmentalist kind of thing? Or was he just more that he was in support of the workers? It was in support of the workers. They had just gotten the right to assemble, and he supported them. Some people said that this led into some of the controversy that may have pushed him into the retirement, but this is pretty early in his career. Some of the articles said like like this was something that kind of upset his superiors because he got involved with these workers and like made him lose his position as a priest. But this is very early in his mm -hmm. career. But I do think it's interesting that this fellow is involved with iron workers mm -hmm. and iron furnaces mm -hmm. here on Strange Familiars. Yeah. That's true. I also think it's interesting, too, because when we talk about one of the possible reasons that Nelson Raymire was targeted as a witch was not necessarily just because of his powwow beliefs, but also because he was a uh, socialist, yeah, pro-labor. Um, it's a point that I really wanted to get into more when we did our first episode mm -hmm. on Hex Hollow. And my co-host at the time was very resistant to it. He thought I was being kind of uh, trendy talking about socialism because Bernie Sanders was a big name at the time. And he thought that that was going to kind of skew our politics one way or another. Or, or, or it know. kind of become more the story mm -hmm. than what we had to tell. But I think it's an integral part of the story. There were powwow doctors all over York. Mm -hmm. And they weren't called demons, not even in the wake of this. You know, they weren't called black magicians. Mm -hmm. They weren't called witches, even in the wake of this, mm -hmm. the, the murder. But Nelson Raymart was. So it really does make me wonder if the issue wasn't so much that he was a powwow doctor, but more that he was politically different mm -hmm. than most of the folks around here. But we're not talking about Nelson Raymire tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In 1877, Abbe Ferret became the curate at Gipri, another town in Brittany. He was there until 1881 when he became the rector at Fourjou-la-Ferret. It means blacksmith of the forest. Oh, really? Or the forest smith. Oh, that's cool. And he stayed there until 1887 when he became rector at Maxon. In 1889, he became rector at Longway. This really is a, <laughs> like a trial by fire in French pronunciation. Yeah. Records note that he arrived at Longway with, quote, hardness of ear, which I'm guessing means he was hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. He's beginning to lose his hearing at this point. So that's 1889. So where he's starting the sort of Goya-esque transformation. <laughs> One could say, yeah, yeah. Now he has what they called a stroke, and I'm assuming it was, it was a it stroke. It was a stroke, yeah. That seemed to accelerate his hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And it also left him partially paralyzed. Could he have had a brain tumor? It could have been anything. I'm thinking they just called anything they didn't know a stroke back then. Yeah, know? like hearing loss with it? Yeah, it, yeah whatever happened, it, it seemed to accelerate his hearing loss 
and he's become partially paralyzed, which would get worse yeah. over the rest of his life. Interesting. Yeah. His parishioners drafted a petition requesting that Fauré be allowed to remain as their priest. However, his health and physical challenges forced him to leave his position. Abbé Fauré, he moved to what they called a hut at Routeneuf on the coast. And you would think this would be his retirement, but it was actually the beginning of his great work. Abbé Fauré had no artistic training before he started carving. So he moves to what they call a hut. And I don't know if it was a hut when he originally moved there, but by the time he was done with it, this was no hut. And he starts carving in wood, and he said he would see shapes in the wood. Like he would look at the wood, and he would see faces or, or like mm-hmm. animal shapes. And he just used his pen knife. He just used his pocket knife. He said he, would, he wasn't making the shapes. He was just making them clear. Like he was just kind of bringing the details out so other people could see what he was seeing oh, in the wow. wood. He's supposedly a, I mean, I've seen some of his wood carvings and they're very, very cool. They're, they're very neat. Oh yeah. I saw one that looked like, um, almost like a freestanding. I don't know if it was like a fountain or it was definitely a religious scene that had that sort of look like a station of the cross or something, maybe mm. really pretty and not at all amateurish. No, no. In fact, we'll read an article in a bit where they kind of talk about how, I think they even use the word exquisite when they were talking about his wood carvings. It's like very intricate and beautifully done. So he had some skill for it, but he had never done it before. This was something he took up. He said he had free time. He went from wood to stone, and he eventually started carving the stone around his quote-unquote hut, and he moved on to the stone cliffs. And like so many other so-called outsider artists, he transformed his entire surroundings. And we were talking a little bit about this at the beginning of the show. He ends up surrounding his hut. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know if it was a hut truly when he moved there if they're just saying this in articles to make him seem more hermit like yeah <laughs> but like but how do you explain like sort of a dwelling of that kind to people who've never seen it before it's always going to be kind of like a hut more than it is going to be a house proper i guess but it looks like a pretty substantial stone house by the time he's done with it including stone walls they're almost like castle walls he's built around the place complete with heads on the battlements like he's got heads mounted on the battle. Oh, wow. The carved heads, mm-hmm. you know, they're not real heads. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I have this article. This is from the Wide World magazine. From June 1909, a couple of people that went to visit Abbé Fauré, they end up getting an audience with him, which apparently was very rare at the time. He wasn't one of those hermits that would come out and hang out with people. At this point in his life, I think his... 
his hearing was a his hearing was bad and and he was having trouble speaking and he was actually having trouble getting around so it was rare to see him at this point i think before like if if he got there at the right time he was there but in any case there's a description of some of the carvings and stuff in this article that i thought was really neat the following article relates the little-known life and work of one of the strangest characters to be found in the entire length and breadth of France. The Abbe Foray, better known as the Hermit of Routeneuf, is enveloped in an atmosphere of mystery, and this fact, coupled with his celebrity as a sculptor of the granite cliffs near St. Malo, has made him a curious and prominent figure in his native district. The writer was accompanied on his visit to the Hermit by M. Paul Genot, the well-known Parisian photographer, who succeeded in obtaining a unique portrait of the usually unapproachable abbe. The patron of the village inn of Rittenhoof, which lies some five miles from St. Malo, on a wild and rocky coast, assured us, whilst we were sipping our café noir at the close of an excellent luncheon, that we should have a difficulty in seeing the hermit. Scores of messieurs les journalistes had come on the same quest and returned home disappointed. I'm told that a good deal depends on the state of the weather, continued our host, glancing out the window, and I must confess that it's in your favor today, but don't count upon it. The good abbe doesn't always respond to the sunshine and come out of his retreat. Who is the abbe? I inquired. How long has he been here, and whence did he come? Ah, oh, monsieur, now you've asked me the usual posers. All I know is that he arrived here about ten years ago, that he began to chip away at the cliffs, and that he's never left off chipping since. You'll learn no more in the village, though you question every one of the inhabitants. The landlord was right as regards the information to be gathered from the good people of Rutnuf. All that anyone could tell us was that the hermit had come among them quite mysteriously ten years back, and that ever since he had lived almost the life of a recluse, his few wants being attended to by a faithful servant who, after long years of service, has become every bit as taciturn as her master. We decided, therefore, that the only thing to do was to try our luck, like the score or more of unsuccessful journalists who had preceded us. Without much hope of success, we at once set off for the western point of the bay. On the main road leading to that wild region we came across, the hermit's house, or as one ought perhaps to call it, fortress, for the only entrance is by way of the garden, through a doorway in a high, battlemented granite wall. But for the fact that the door was half open, and that the battlements were surrounded by a row of the most comical heads we had ever set eyes on, we should probably there and then have given up all idea of attempting to invade the privacy of the hermit. With those figures confronting us, however, how could we take the fortifications seriously? Drawing a little nearer, we discovered that these amusing grotesques were all of them neatly named, like objects in a museum. One of the central images... Smiling at us from over the doorway, delighted in the name of Perino del Folles, his companion to the right, a gentleman with an expression that denoted chronic dyspepsia, was Adolphe de la Haye, whilst the fierce-looking bonhomme to the left was Sir de Hindal. Marc de Langlois was a jolly-faced monk with an imperial. Carl de la Villa Aura was undoubtedly a medieval warrior. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> and the two dames... Yvonne de Mimpke and Jean de Lavorde were probably intended to represent types of feminine beauty during the Middle Ages. This remarkable gallery of portraits, which we rightly conjectured to be the work of the Abbe Foray, was but an introduction, as we found on passing through the doorway into the garden, to even more extraordinary examples of his art. No one came forward to meet us as we entered, so we had ample opportunity to study the numerous heads and carved wood which stood here and there on pedestals and posts. The impression they produced was rather gruesome. Some were frowning, others were grinning, 
and others again displayed the lack of expression, always so painful to behold, which we find in the faces of the mentally deranged. One felt that there was something abnormal in the carved images of this strange silent garden. To dispel the feeling of oppression that was rapidly creeping over us, we moved toward the hermit's door and knocked. It was opened to us by an aged peasant woman, who in reply to our inquiries for her master informed us that though the monsieur was not then receiving visitors, I began to fear that the landlord of the inn was a true prophet. However, acting on the theory that hope still remained so long as the door was not actually closed in our faces, I kept up the conversation with the old housekeeper, expressing our regret that we could not learn something from the hermit's own lips about the remarkable pieces of sculpture which he had executed on the neighboring granite cliffs and which we had come hundreds of miles to see. Was it really impossible, I asked, to see him but for a few minutes? The woman hesitated, and you know the proverb concerning the woman who hesitates. Was it not a thousand pieties, I continued eloquently, that one of us should have come all the way from England to see the celebrated sculptor of Rutenhof only to find that he was not at home? This final argument evidently had considerable weight, for the aged dame, with a somewhat reluctant jouvray, returned into the house to consult her lord and master. Before she had taken many steps, however, who should come forward to meet her but the abbe himself? He was evidently almost stone deaf, for the servant had to shout out our message into his ear at the top of her voice. The word Angleterre seemed to produce an instant effect upon the hermit. They're British. <laughs> he nodded and smiled, and then to our great satisfaction came towards us. The hermit has the appearance and manners of the typical old French priest. Deep lines mark his cheek and forehead, clearly denoting a great span of years during which his hardships have been anything but slight. His movements are extremely slow, due, as we afterwards learnt from his housekeeper, to partial paralysis. His hearing, as I have already mentioned, has almost gone, and his memory leaves much to be desired. Think of the difficulties of an interview under such circumstances as these. However, we succeeded in learning several interesting details about the life and work of this strange character, and these I will now set down. The abbe, formerly the curé of a village whose name no one has yet been able to discover, declares that he is 78 years of age. It is probable, however, that he is very much older, and that his mistake is due to his very defective memory. He is a native of Rutnuf, but nobody there can remember him as a child, so we are doubtless right in conjecturing that he left the village when in his youth and never returned to it until comparatively recent years. His object in returning was to spend his declining years in a district which he has held green in memory. As to his life during the interval of departure and return, it is enshrouded in mystery. The only fact which he seemed willing or able to impart being that he had spent part of his time in England as a teacher of French. Here, undoubtedly, was the explanation of the favor which he accorded us. On the subject of his work as a sculptor, the hermit was much more communicative. He gathered from his somewhat disjointed phrases that when he first began to carve in wood and stone, it was merely with the object of spending his leisure hours agreeably. But after a time, when he found that the public showed an interest in what he was doing, he thought that he might as well get some little profit out of his handiwork. Every laborer was worthy of his hire. His savings were small and barely sufficient to meet his needs. So where was the disgrace if he had turned a happy idea into current coin of the realm? His first efforts were in the direction of wood carving. Noticing that the knotty, twisted bowls of trees sometimes strangely resembled human and animal forms, he began to make them still more lifelike by a dexterous cut here and there with his pocket knife. All his woodwork was carried out with an ordinary clasp knife. Whenever possible, he utilized the forms that nature gave his blocks of wood, though, as the specimens in his garden clearly showed, he was quite capable of dispensing with them. 
Grotesque as many of the carvings undoubtedly are, there's no denying that this self-taught sculptor is possessed of a good deal of real talent. At the top of the cliff overlooking the bay, he has erected a cross bearing a Christ that denotes considerable skill, and before leaving his house to visit the cliffs, he showed us some oak sideboards, tables, and chairs so beautifully carved that I had a difficulty in believing the work had been executed merely with a knife and a mallet. I'm inclined to think that these are the best of all of the Abbe Foray's productions. The carvings on the granite cliffs below his house are certainly less original than these admirable pieces of furniture, but though less artistic, they are much more curious from the point of view of the average traveler. It may be said indeed without any exaggeration that they have made the reputation both of Rutnuf and its hermit. Before his arrival, the village was unknown, almost without a visitor, and certainly without any other attraction than the rocky coast and the open sea. Now it is a recognized place of pilgrimage. A small tramway joins the Borg to Parame, and during the summer months, thousands of tourists flock there to see the wonderful Rocher de Rutnuf. The idea of converting a hundred yards of granite cliff into a huge sculpture gallery was, if I may be allowed to use an American expression, extremely cute. Was that an American expression? I didn't know that. <laughs> did it occur spontaneously to the Abbe Faure, or did he, presuming that he had been a traveler, borrow it from the carved rocks of Libichov in Bohemia? For the hermit had a predecessor some 80 years ago or so that lived in the person of the celebrated sculptor Vaclav Louet who, during his holidays at Libachev, where he had formerly been in the employ of the Comte Vaif as a kitchen boy, carved the rocks in the neighboring forests. Fear of hurting the hermit's feelings by appearing to doubt his capacity for originality prevented me from asking if he had ever been there or heard of its famous carvings. The way to the rocks of Rutnuf leads from the top of the cliff. You pass on the way through a rustic entrance erected by the hermit, who is also placed in full view of visitors, a box for their offerings, which he naively told us was devoted to the upkeep of the rocks. On the box are the following words. It is neither amiable nor even just to visit these rocks without offering true compensation. (laughs) And no one is ever inclined to quarrel with this reminder that something is due to the poor. All give freely after they have seen the result of his ten years of patient toil. As you descend the steps which he has cut in the hard rock, you suddenly come upon one of the most extraordinary sights in France. On all sides are standing or reclining figures, some of them isolated, others in groups. The entire face of the cliff seems alive with saints, devils, and fantastic animals. Though you may not notice all at the first glance, you quickly discover that there is hardly a square yard of rock that has not been carved to resemble some human or animal form. The natural irregularity of the surface of the rocks has been utilized by the sculptor in a most clever manner. Here he has seen a suggestion for a head. There a long granite boulder that could be converted into a couchant saint with a long beard and a curious headdress. And there, again, a series of irregularly shaped rocks that wanted little change to them into a family group. That of a fisherman, his wife, and their five children, one of whom is lying on its mother's lap. You will notice, too, that a fish bearing a certain resemblance to a shark appears beneath the rock on which the fisherman is sitting, and that by the position of its snout it would seem to be able to devour the family." The religious element in the hermit's compositions is strong, as one would naturally expect. There are saints and angels innumerable, two or three altars, and at least one representation of the Almighty, but he has by no means limited himself to church and biblical subjects. Sometimes he has taken his inspiration from local history. One of his most ambitious compositions represents scenes in the lives of the lords of Rutenuf. Actuality, too, has often given him an idea for a group or single figure. For instance, at the time of the war and the death of the Colonel de Vibois-Moray, He set to work to compose a very lifelike, sepulchral statue of that misguided hero. The realism of the hermit's pieces of sculpture is sometimes heightened by the addition of coats of paint, 
In this respect, he follows the example of some of the sculptors in the Middle Ages. His whole art indeed seems to be inspired by the work of these and other primitive artists. In the early years of the Abbe Faure's gigantic enterprise, and even up to quite recently, he could be seen every day, winter and summer alike, working hard with chisel and mallet. Now, owing to physical decline, he takes things a little easier, but whenever he's able to leave his house to continue his endless task, he does so. People laugh at him at first and make uncharitable remarks, but now that they know the old man better, they admire him for his simplicity, his goodness of heart, and his inexhaustible patience. Long may he continue to carve the rocks is a wish that not one of the inhabitants of the little village would gainsay. That gave a very vivid impression of what it was like. You yeah, know, having not the, been there, I the, thought the, that the descriptions were. They really did a really nice. good job. Yeah. Abbe Ferret continued carving the stone cliffs for fourteen years. Not fourteen years from that time, but from when he started. That article is from nineteen oh nine. He died in nineteen ten. They said he worked daily when he was in, able to do so mm-hmm. throughout all seasons. You could find him out there working on the rocks. Eventually, his physical ailments forced him to stop altogether, and he died in the hermitage at Rutenhof on February 10th, 1910. This is from the San Francisco Call, the 21st of March, 1910. Hermit of the Rock. Future visitors to Rutenhof will miss the venerable Abbe Faure, who, like old mortality in some respects, struck out a peculiar line for himself. His mission in time of recreation was to chisel the high rocks of the coast— says London Globe, the old man was a picturesque figure with his cassock, silver buckled shoes, and white hair fluttering in the wind from beneath his barrette. All his spare time was spent in carving figures of various kinds upon the rocks of granite. Here were to be seen fabulous monsters, animals, and portrayals of scenes from the Breton church history and legends intermingled with heads of the leaders of the Boer War. In the season, the abbe was a personage of interest, and all visitors pleased themselves and him by inspecting his works of art. He had passed his 80th birthday and was known as the Hermit of the Rock. So his obituary made it all, all the, the way, way to, to San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. Next thing you know, Jarvis Cocker will be out there looking for him, along with all the other outsider artists. Before he died, Abbe Frey would fill an area of almost 6,000 square feet with 300 stone sculptures. That's a lot of feet. That's pretty impressive. It reminds me of so many of those other people who were like just never stopped working. Like the project was never done, whether it was the, um, is it the Winchester mansion or um, probably my favorite is the lady from Death Valley, whose name escapes me now, who had the opera house there. Yeah, it began with an M, was it? I can't think of her name. She had painted the audience in the theater there. So she would dance. Did she do like two or three shows a week when she was able to? Yeah. And, but she had painted an audience, so she'd always have an audience to Yeah, if no one came to, to visit. Dance it's amazing. She actually contacted me back in the days of MySpace because I had a picture of um, an old dancer from like the turn of the century as my image. Mm-hmm. And she wrote to me and she said, I have a book coming out soon. It's about my life. And there's going to be a movie, a documentary called, I think it's called To Dance on Sands. Yeah, it's it's like, a, I think you would like it. It's a cool documentary. It's a, it is. It's amazing. It's about this woman who leaves her very kind of normal life and psych, kind of psychically ends up in Death Valley. They went through there for some reason. She was on tour as a dancer, I think. And they went through there and she just said, I'm just staying. I'm staying. Yeah. yeah. And ends up buying 
the whole town, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting. The rocks at Rutnuf, the tourist board there does not actually advertise them. You can go there Mm -hmm. and see them. Who owns the property? I believe there's like a foundation or something who who has taken over. But they're worried about erosion. Apparently, you know, it's right on the sea. Mm -hmm. And the salt water and the wind and the sand have eroded the statues a good bit. And they're afraid if they really promote it. Before they get, they want to make like pathways and stuff so people aren't just climbing all over the rocks. Oh, that they they don't sense. have that yet. So they're afraid if they promote it too much before then, they're just going to get further degenerated by people touching them and mm-hmm. everything else. Yeah, but there's a sweetness to that. I mean, it reminds me of those sort of temporary mandalas where you get done the entire sand mandala and then you just wipe it away. Yeah. But yeah, it's all about the journey, right? Like it can, isn't necessarily about the You can go see the, the rocks. You can go. Apparently it's expensive to tour the rocks, but uh, for me it would be very much worth it. Yeah, I think I, so. Someday I would love to see those rocks. We don't have any granite in the backyard. Otherwise I know what Tim would be out there <laughs> Feel free if you want to carve any of the um, the grass that's out there, maybe in a flat way, maybe once a week or so. I tried to do an Edward Scissorhands <laughs> with, with, uh, with the hedges out front, but... Didn't work. Didn't work. No, they just look like balls. Maybe that's what I was going. (laughs) All of this would be interesting enough, but there may have been more to both Abbe Ferre and his sculptures than just some carvings of saints, pirates, and devils. This article is from the Evening Star from Washington, D.C., the 10th of June, 1905. Good luck with this one. (laughs) (laughs) The Future of France, Story of Old-Time Prophecy Carved in the Rocks, where hermit priests sculptured fantastic figures, prediction made centuries and centuries ago has proved exact in the past and things yet to come. Brittany, May 27th, 1905. When next you go to Atlantic City, cast your eyes northeast across the Atlantic. Far on the other side, where the first land begins, a rocky point of France sticks out into the ocean. Among these gigantic rocks, a modern hermit lives beside the tomb of one of the most ancient Celtic saints. The tomb is carved in rock, and all these rocks are carved fantastically in human shapes, and these carvings tell the story of an old-time prophecy that has proved exact in the past and promises strange things for France in the near future. The tomb is the tomb of St. Budoc, who was a saint in the long past days when Irishmen and Bretons spoke one language, when the Celtic tongue was one of learning. More than a thousand years have passed, and who St. Budoc was is scarcely known. He left, however, two things, his carved rock tomb washed by the Atlantic breakers and a mystically worded prophecy whose manuscript exists no longer, but whose text has been preserved in more than one occult book from the Middle Ages down. To these rocks, stretching out into the wild Atlantic as if pointing to the new world, came, some twenty years ago, a man who wished to live and meditate alone. He occupied a cave beside St. Budoc's tomb. He carved a sheltered seat from which to look on the immensity of sea and sky, and there he sat and brooded of the prophecy, or the prophecy of Orville, as you please to call it. Because once, four hundred years before him, such another solitary brooder, Philip Oliverius, A Cistercian monk was struck in the same way by the same text, then already ancient, and its fulfillment in his time, and wrote a book upon it dated 1544. And as the modern hermit sat beside the tomb, meditating on the prophecy, it came to him that 
he ought to complete the rock carvings which the wind and waves had spared 1,000 years and represent the prophecy pictorially on the spot where 1,000 years ago it was conceived. This is why tourists who have automobiles may now see a strange sight meeting with an extraordinary personage and hear a tale of prophecy fulfilled through centuries and so feel a new thrill to wonder if the prophecy is now to stop short coming true. You come to Rittenhoff by any means you please except by train. It is a lost Breton village on the coast. You quit it and walk over windy downs where nothing grows but gorse and heather. Then you come to cliffs that overhang the ocean. Those you follow as they slope down to the shore to make a kind of pocket. You make one more turn and stand and wonder if you're not dreaming. Down carved steps, you wend your way into a kind of petrified inferno. Everywhere are human faces, human forms that sprawl or stand upright. The faces stare at you from overhanging cliffs, from the ground at your feet, from ledges that rise breast high. Seated figures sit immobile, staring at the sea. Groups of figures seem to have been petrified in action. All are carved in the eternal rock. What strikes one most is the archaic type to which they belong. The carvings look as if they've been there a thousand years. Indeed, the hermit thinks they have, when in a communicative mood he may explain to you that he renewed the figures only, worn and washed by countless tides. You may believe this, or that the Atlantic simply washed the rocks into fantastic shapes, which stimulated the imagination of the hermit. In any case, the tomb itself is ancient. Backed up against the cliff, it looks half like an altar, half like a tomb, grotesquely decorated in the antique Celtic style. It is the tomb of St. Budok, and the hermit sculptor doubtless took his inspiration from it. He, the hermit, has a modern look due to the fact that he is utterly sincere and utterly unconscious of the notice of stray tourists. He does not dress theatrically for the hermit's part. He looks what he was in earlier life, a county curé of the Breton race. His history is simple. Twenty years ago, he was a parish priest. Partial paralysis came suddenly and affected chiefly his speech. He was forced to give up his parish, so wandering he came to this wild shore which he knew from boyhood, and so he set up himself beside St. Budok's tomb, with which he was so familiar as a Celtic student, and so he became a hermit. Thus the cult of St. Budok and St. Budok's prophecy grew upon this lonely man. Some say he has a Celtic text of the prophecy. If so, it's probably unique, because the oldest text known, itself extremely rare, is that of the monk Oliverius, the 16th century Cistercian. The hermit speaks little, first because of his infirmity, and secondly because of the hermit's life should be a silent one, but he shows innocent contentment when you express admiration for his handiwork. And now and then he will point to a figure or a group and tell its name, and sometimes he will even add the date to which it answers in the prophecy. To understand the meanings of all this, you must know something of the prophecy itself, which at various periods of French history has enjoyed immense celebrity and then become forgotten again. For example, shortly after the execution of Louis XVI, which he predicted, the emigrated French nobility in England, the Low Countries, and Austria gave great attention to it, naturally anxious for a sign. Again, about the year 1848, the accuracy with which it foretold the rise and fall of Louis-Philippe became matter for general wonderment all over France. Indeed, Baron de Novailles, writing a couple of years ago, cited that part of its text foretelling the events between 1828 and 1849 as impossible to have been written by any but a sure enough prophet vis-a-vis a. the fall of Charles X, b. that his successor should not call himself king of France, but king of the people, c. that the crown should be put on his head by working men who shall have combated in the great city of Paris, and d. that after 18 years of reign, the king of the people should be cast down. I ask the hermit to show us this part of the prophecy in his sculpted representation of it. 
The cock shall efface the white flower, he mumbled, quoting the text, and one shall call himself king of the people. He indicated a sprawling figure in stone with its foot on a fleur-de-lis. Louis-Philippe, monsieur, monarchy of July, great commotion shall be felt because the crown shall be posed on his head by workingmen combating in the great city. The royalty of Louis-Philippe came out of the riots of 1830. Of course, the text of the prophecy is too long to be quoted here, but reflect for a moment. 400 years ago, its accuracy in foretelling certain events so struck Philippe Oliverius that he published a book on it, not to go back further than the French Revolution. It foretold Bonaparte and his victories in detail, his early campaigns in Malta and Egypt, the proclamation of the empire, conquests of the European crowns, apogee of the empire, concordat, even to the captivity of the pope. Here is the part of the text. In that time, a young man, Napoleon, come to the Celtic land from beyond the sea, Corsica, will manifest himself by counsels of force. But the great ones, jealous, will send him to war in the island of captivity, Malta. But victory will bring him back to his first country, Italy. The sons of Brutus, Republicans, will become stupid at his approach because he will dominate them, Brumaire, and take the name of emperor. High and powerful kings will fear because the eagle, Bonaparte's emblem, will lift off many crowns. Foot soldiers and cavaliers bearing bloody eagles will go with him. All Europe will be overrun, and we will be so strong that God will seem to war on his side with him. The church of God will be somewhat consoled and open again its temples to its wandering sheep. The old man of Sion cries to God from his captivity. Now the strong one, Napoleon, becomes blinded by passions and crimes. He quits the great city with so great an army as was never seen. But a third part of it, and still another third part of it, must perish by the cold of the Lord. Retreat from Moscow. Two lusters, ten years, have passed since the cycle of desolation, the end of the revolution. Widows and orphans have cried, and God is not deaf. The high brought low will found a league, the first coalition, to put down the redoubted man. There comes with them the old blood of the centuries, old race of French kings, to retake its place in the great city, Paris, and the man will be abased and sent beyond the seas to Elba. God only is great. The eleventh moon has not yet passed. Eleven times, twenty-eight days, three hundred days, time of the first restoration. And the bloody whip of the Lord will be again laid out of the great city, and the old blood will quit the great city. The departure of Louis the Eighteenth. God alone is great. The fifth moon, three times, twenty-eight days, the hundred days, shines on armies from the east. Gaul is covered with men and machines of war, and it is finished with the man of the sea. Napoleon. There's parts and quotes there. I don't know if that was apparent that when I kind of changed my voice there a little bit, they're, they're yeah. talking about what fulfills the prophecy. Right, yeah, yeah. I was stumbling, but it wasn't specifically because it's of that. so much better than I would have. <laughs> I'm quoting here from the text found in Henry Barrest's Nostradamus, copied by Barrest from a text dated 1822, itself copied from the text of Oliverius, published in Luxembourg in 1544. The hermit brought out of his pocket a much-worn number of a now-defunct magazine, the Journal de Vie et de Campagne, like uh, that's what's town and country. Okay. For June 1839, containing an installment of the prophecy, which ran on, on until August 1839, sections of the prophecy have also been published in Gaston Marais' Echo de Merveilleux, dated February 15th, 1904. Echo of the Marvelous, mm. right? 
The hermit led us from one sculptured figure to another, from one sculptured tableau to another, muttering names and dates and the imagery of the old text. The old one of Sion, bloody eagles, sons of Brutus, he beckoned to me to look at his journal, his fingers indicating the lines, the prophecy after foretelling the Republic of 1848 foretells the rise of Louis Napoleon, the Franco-Prussian War, and the proclamation of the Third Republic under the cannon of the enemy. Howl, sons of Brutus, call down on yourselves the beasts which shall devour you, great God. What a noise of arms. The hermit read the words painfully. Behold the sons of Brutus, he chuckled, pointing to a sculptured group of villainous-looking citizens. The hermit is evidently not a good Republican. He led us further on. The future, he mumbled. The future. It's interesting because uh, the paper that he gives them to read is from, what, June of 1839? He was born in 1839, right? Mm, yeah. He was born like a few months later. Yeah. First we saw a lot of kneeling figures evidently praying. Further we were confused. Scenes of battle and arson. Then there was a gallant young shepherd with his flock, and further along were three other flocks of sheep. The text which these personify is that which follows directly after the apostrophe to the sons of Brutus proclaiming the Third Republic. It is done. The mountain of God, conservative and royalist cause, has called to God, and God is no longer deaf. Twelve times eighteen moons, and eighteen times twelve moons have nourished his wrath. Woe to thee, great city! Behold the kings armed by the Lord. The place of crime is purged by fire, and the great rivulet, the sun, had run red to the sea. God loves peace. Come, young prince, quit the Isle of Captivity and join the lion to the white flower. Our eyes followed the hermit's fingers as he pointed it out line by line from the journal. The calculation is easy. 12 times 18 moons plus 18 times 12 moons makes 432 moons or 36 years. You see how close France is to the ominous thing? Sons of Brutus, watch yourselves. The present French Republic dates from the year 1879. Add 36 years and you get the year 1906 with the prediction, Woe to thee, great city. You understand next year the kings, armed by the Lord, are to fall on Paris and the sun is to run red with blood to the sea. But who is the young prince, figured by the hermit as a shepherd, and what is the Isle of Captivity? Is it England, where Philippe of Orleans has Orleans House at Twickenham? He has also a great palace at Palermo in the island of Sicily. Joining the lion to the white flower evidently means adding Belgium to the old French monarchy. Monsieur is English, insinuated the hermit. He pointed to a flock of stone sheep. English people, he explained. I understood when he pointed to the line of the text. Many lost sheep will come to drink at the living fountain. A great people of the sea will again take up the true faith in two-thirds parts. It is true that Ireland is already Catholic. God blesses the earth again during fourteen times six moons and six times thirteen moons. He will prolong peace even yet ten times twelve moons, and then the man arrives born of two races. That is the Antichrist. It is all there carved in the living rock. The Atlantic breakers pound upon the rocks below it. The hermit's cave is higher up in a dry spot sheltered from the winds. Beside its entrance is his seat carved in the rock to form a sheltering recess. There we left the hermit sitting alone and gazing on the western ocean. As the sun set in a great red ball, God loves peace, he was muttering. Come, young prince, quit the Isle of Captivity. No, decidedly, the hermit of Rutenhof is not a good Republican. So it's kind of hard to make your way through all that prophecy, but 1906, not much happened. Yeah. But World War I was right on the horizon. Yeah. 
very soon after. I mean, the other part of me was the the skeptic in me would say is there's hardly a time when any particular country um, hasn't been at war. <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> it's a pretty safe prison. That's uh, true, but it's very interesting because yeah, how close to Paris? Yeah, add add another decade and you're already in them. You think about what an integral part the French coast played in the in World War Two. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, World War One was. I don't know if the sun ran red with blood, but you know, a lot of France did. Brutal war. Be interesting for someone who really knows French history to look at those. Yeah, maybe something more dramatic happened in 1906. I'm just not aware of. Or maybe the the timing's just a little off. Yeah, maybe Maybe there's an extra moon there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, things things apply differently or something like that. Very interesting. May have been more than just uh, folk art he was doing, according to that article. Do you think every lone hermit monk is actually a secret occultist? Um, not necessarily. No, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't think that he was either. I think he may be a prophet, but uh, that doesn't make him an occultist. So that's our our story of Abbe Foray. Incredibly fascinating person. Certainly beats a lot of other ways to spend retirement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that speaks to me because I would like to think that presented with whatever obstacles. I would continue to create. Yeah. Because it's very important to me. I love making things. Mm-hmm. You know? so it's, I, I love doing the podcast. It's just a different way of making things. You know, I love creating things. So it's a very inspiring story as far as that goes. One of our folk saints of the podcast, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'd love to go there and see. Yeah, i absolutely love to go there. Fun fact, you know, his um, his birth is pretty much you know, just within weeks of the announcement of photography, just in France. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And there are a ton of photographs of him taken as well. I have a lot of them. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Paracord Rosaries I mentioned have been selling really well. There should be more up at the Etsy shop right now. I just made some more earlier tonight. They should be listed by the time this episode gets published. The Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, one word. If you type in Lost Grave at the Etsy search, they'll ask you if you want to go to our store, or you can just go to etsy.com shop slash lost grave the rosaries are in the flowered path section of the shop if the rosaries sell out and they keep selling out keep checking back because i'm making them as fast as i can if you want to reserve one you can shoot me a message my email is theflowerpath at gmail.com the sources for the news segment can be found in the show notes for this episode at theflowerpath.com News writers for The Flower Path are patrons and friends of the show, Sarah and Kevin. Please like and subscribe to The Flower Path wherever you are listening. If you're inclined to leave a nice review, that will help as well. The Flower Path is on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel there. You can find it by going to youtube.com slash at sign The Flower Path 6395. I don't know why they put those numbers after the name, but that's the way it is. No matter where you listen, if you like what you hear, please share the episodes with your friends and on social media. You can find The Flowered Path on Facebook, facebook.com slash thefloweredpath. 
on Instagram at The Flowered Path and on the web at thefloweredpath.com. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.